And let me introduce our panel to you. Now with us in studio this morning, Alan Dukes, former leader of Fine Gael and former chairman of IBRC. Gronya Healy, public affairs consultant. Harry McGee, political correspondent with the Irish Times. Noreen Hegarty, vice president with Lonely Planet. And Amy McKeever, editor of Irish Country Living. And you are all very, very welcome indeed. And we are going to, I think it's, I don't know if he's still in Dublin Airport, but Dimitri uh, O'Donnell, RTE reporter. Uh, Dimitri, good morning to you. I just heard you there on the uh, the news headlines. Um, congratulations to you. How did you know Lisa was going to be on that flight? Good morning, Marion. Well, to you. I have my editors to thank for that. They... Um they advised me to take that flight this morning, be at the Istanbul airport uh, bright and early at half five. And uh, sure enough, she was there. She actually was due to depart yesterday, but uh, the, 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 the arrangement uh, for her to get to the airport was pulled at the last minute. So we, we, we kind of had ad- advance notice that she was going to be leaving either late yesterday or early this morning. And sure enough, she left this morning on that Turkish Airlines flight. Right. And, and you were on that flight too. And yes. w- w- was she treated differently in the airport? I, I mean, not in the Irish airport, in the Turkish airport. No, Marion, appeared not because I hung around until the very end of, of the boarding at the gate where the, the flight was departing from in Istanbul. And there was no sign of Lisa Smith at all. So, in fact, she was, I think, taken on prior to the main boarding. So she was seated then at the back of the aircraft when I got on board. And I was, in fact, just one row ahead of her um, in the seat to the left. So uh, she she was already on board with her young daughter um, by the time I'd arrived. And she kept a very low profile, Marion, throughout the flight. Um, she did not appear anxious. She spent most of the time chatting and playing to her uh, with her young daughter and uh, did not look anxious or concerned. Now, I did leave uh, Lisa Smith, you know, alone for a good, you know, halfway through the flight. And then I did approach her just to see if she wanted to make a comment to RTE News about her arrival in Ireland, how she felt. And uh, I was told by a security person who was seated next to her uh, that she did not want to comment. And Lisa herself said she did not want to comment. So um, I left her alone and I did not bother her for the rest of the flight. Okay. And when you say a security person, was that like somebody like a Gorda or somebody from Ireland or... Who, what security? That, that's a very interesting question, Marion. It's actually something I asked myself at the end of the flight. I, I asked the, the personnel who travelled with Lisa, and there was, I think, I counted four in total. Um, there was uh, two females and two males, and uh, they would not identify who they were with. And I said, are you with the Department of Foreign Affairs? Are you providing counsellor assistance? Are you with the Gardaí? Um, and they did not make themselves known to me. So I don't know at this stage who they were, but certainly throughout the flight, um, she was surrounded by, by, by security personnel. One, certainly at the end of the row where she was, and then on the row, the row opposite, there was also two members um, you know, with her, two personnel, and then on my row, which is the row in front, there was also another lady seated to the right of me. So um, there was about a, a team of four. Right. Um, it, it's, it's, well, I suppose under the circumstances, you would need four people to bring her home. Yes. You know, um, and it was Turkish Airlines. Uh, it wasn't, uh, well, like we didn't fly out a plane out there or anything. Anyway, you said she was happy out. She seemed to be very content, very calm, 
very little fuss was made actually around her. None of the other passengers knew who she was or would have been aware that she was on board until towards the end um, of the flight. Uh, when I made an approach, the lady next to me said, oh, is that Lisa Smith? And I said, yes. And she said, oh, I think um, that I, I didn't realize that this was happening. And then she talked to oh, She thought there was other people on board as well. Other, other passengers on board got slightly curious towards the end as, as Lisa was taken out. Now, towards the end of the flight, she spent the last five minutes under uh, a pink blanket with her daughter. Um, just to make it clear, I had said, you know, that we would not be filming um, Lisa's daughter. Um, right, yeah. And we would conceal her if there was any images of her, just to make that clear to your listeners. Um, because obviously this is a, a minor and we have responsibilities as a journalist not to, yep. not to go down that, that road. But Lisa spent the last five minutes under the pink blanket looking out the window, pointing at the sky to her daughter and, and just like looking looking out at the, at the landscape as you arrive into Dublin Airport. Then she was taken off um, with uh, by that security officer who was, who was with her. Yeah. She was left at the back of the plane and then uh, she was that was well before we actually had arrived at the stand. So almost immediately we, when we touched down, Lisa was swooped from her seat, taken to the back of the aircraft. She was kept there uh, with that security personnel until the uh, steps were brought to the plane. And then a number, I counted six, and I can't be sure yet because I've not had time to verify this. I would say six Gardaí, or, or certainly from this anti-terrorist unit, came to, to meet uh, Lisa Smith at the steps of the aircraft. She disembarked with all those personnel, again, concealed under that pink blanket with her daughter, and uh, then she was taken away into, in a black van and taken, taken out, of the, uh, out of the stand. And you know not where they were going? We don't know um, for sure, Marion, but we do know all reports have indicated that Lisa's daughter, uh, provisions have been made to care for her, and Lisa herself will have to meet the Gardaí or members of Angarda Shiakona to talk through her time in IS. She moved over there in 2015, and lots has been said, as you know, about what she got up to, whether or not she carried weapons, whether or not she trained young girls as young as nine online. She denies all of this. She denies any wrongdoing. She said she, she famously said that she used to run with the crowd, and that's how she got herself in her own words, caught up and moved to IS. She married an IS man, the father of her daughter, an IS militant, and he was later killed, we don't know, on the battlefield, but he certainly died, uh, according to her story. So she has lots of questions to answer about her movements in Syria. They will have been, uh, you know, trying to go through her accounts and what she said already to the media. Um, But certainly they will be trying to piece together Lisa Smith's story what did she get up to in Syria? How long was she there for? Who did she know? Who did she speak to? Does she know of any other IS, former IS militants or terrorists who moved back to Europe? Does she have names? Uh, what was her assumed name? Because when you go into Islamic State at the time, you were given an assumed name, another name. So she wouldn't have been known, of course, as Lisa Smith. She would have been known uh, by, another, by another name. So all of this has to be worked out. She's now back on Irish soil and we're at the very, very early stage. Okay, of and we have a guard statement to say uh, that Lisa Smith is detained at a South Dublin Garda station and that yeah. her child is being cared for by relatives. So apart from all the big issues of the world, this little two-year-old uh, yeah. is going to be with what, well, f- for the time being, are effectively strangers. Yes, yes, her family. She's never met Lisa's family from Drawdown. 
in County Loud, and they have said uh, quite publicly that they would be willing to take care of her. Yeah. Um, as I said, as I saw on the plane, from the little bit that I did see of the interactions with Lisa and her daughter, she seemed very normal, um, a regular mother looking after her child on the plane, trying to keep her entertained, trying to point her, you know, out the window at yeah. various things or, you know, on board. Uh, uh, you know, very calm, uh, very, didn't look anxious, as I said, Marion. Um, and, and she was wearing a headscarf as well right. um, on, on board. So Lisa Smith has said that she still identifies as Muslim and, 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 and that's not the, the reason why she joined uh, IS in the first place. It was to, to go in search of a better life. Okay, and and to jo- to live in the caliphate. But anyway, Dimitri O'Donnell, thank you very very much indeed uh, for that. It'll be interesting to see what happens here, Harry McGee. What do you make of it? Um, well, difficult I, politically. I think so. I I suspect that the four security personnel who were on the flight were probably drawn from the Rangers wing of the Irish Army. There's been reports that they've been out there coordinating security, and they have worked in terms of close protection security. Oh, right. uh, um, I was in Mali last year with the Taoiseach and the Rangers wing provided close protection security. So I presume that they were probably former army colleagues of, of uh, Lisa Smith who, who provided that. I, I think it's, it's a good thing that she's home. Mm-hmm. I think uh, the British government last year, um, uh, they took a very obdurate stance against a very young woman who had been caught up in the ISIS thing and had been in Syria and they essentially removed her citizenship and she had a young daughter at the time who subsequently died and left her essentially as a stateless person. And I, I think thought that was against every convention in the world. A- absolutely, and yeah. I think it was wrong. And I think that, that even though uh, she, uh, there are lots of allegations about her involvement uh, with ISIS and her activities, she nonetheless remains an Irish citizen. And I think as an Irish citizen, I think it, 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 the, the government and the state has acted correctly in taking her home. Yeah. And then they can now go through the process of, of, of going through with her uh, all of the alleged activities that she has done for the past three years. And it also has an obligation to her daughter, who is also an Irish, an Irish citizen. citizen. And I'm yeah. glad that, that the Tusla has become involved and that the child is now in the care of, of relatives. So I think in all, I think it has been very well handled uh, by uh, the state um, all things being equal. Right. I think though on foot of what, what Demetria Donald was saying there, the interviews that Lisa Smith has given um, originally to Norma Costello and she's yeah. spoken subsequently from the refugee camp in Syria have raised more questions than they've given answers. So I think it is appropriate. That, in what kind of well, way? Well, you know, she's she's denied that she, she's, she said she basically stayed in a house for the last four years. Um, she has military training. She's a military background other people have come out and said she did train young girls. She's denied this. Um, but there are many questions unanswered and many holes in her story. Um, so, you know, I think while it is appropriate and we have legal obligations to bring her back to Ireland and yeah. her child is, is completely innocent and an Irish citizen, as has been said, um, there are serious questions to be asked and particularly in light of the attack in London over the last few days where it appears that, you know, this man, Usman Khan, that was shot dead um, and had stabbed two people prior to that and injured a, a, yeah. a, another number of people, he had been been released early from prison. Um, he'd been involved in a previous Al-Qaeda plot to blow up the London Stock Exchange in 2012, um, got out of prison early, was electronically tagged and then carried out this atrocious attack. Yeah. So there is an obligation on us to understand, you know, what what these people are about, what they believe in and what their, you know, whether their view has changed right. now. I haven't heard Lisa Smith say she's been really sorry about this. I haven't heard Shamima Began that, that Harry referenced or the Bethnal three girls, two of whom I believe have been killed. Remember they were 15 and they went yes. out to be jihadi brides. Um, we're not hearing really sorry, made a terrible mistake. This was, you know, an awful thing. Didn't realise what was happening. 
I'm not hearing that yet, and I think we do need to hear that. But how how did these yes, Alan dudes, women and young girls, come to the view that somehow they were going to a better life with ISIS? Well, I mean, that I, is I indoctrination. Understand. Yeah, you know, as at I a fundamental level. What she said herself, uh, no, it wasn't. It was a friend of hers said. She said. Uh, that she wanted to live in a caliphate for a purer form of Islam. Yeah, but I mean, how how do people come to the conclusion? And I'm not disputing that that's what they say, but how can they conclude that this is in some way a better life uh, than they have here? I mean, I think we we need really to, to find a way to understand how that process takes place, that people come to a conclusion like that, and what is it in their life uh, that leads them to the belief that there is a purer form of life in a place a, a where purer even... A purer form of Islam. A purer form of Islam. Yeah. In, in a place where wholesale murder uh, and violence is going on. I mean, we need to understand what the process is that brings people yeah. uh, to that view. Well, it's a very sophisticated propaganda and indoctrination regime yeah. and that's been evidenced from particularly the women mm. that went from the United States and men. Um, I, do, I do think one of the differences here though is that many of the other young people and they're mostly young people who are radicalised mm. tend to have disadvantaged backgrounds, they left school early that's not the case. That's, that's not the, the case. That's here. not the case here. Yeah. So I think Alan is correct about we do need some excavation of how has this happened, what are the reasons, and what are the draws and the attractions to understand what's actually happening. I think here. that some of the attraction Amy. of bringing her back was to try to have a better understanding of this. Mm. And there is a difference between converting to Muslim into the religion and wanting to live within that life yeah. and being radicalised and converted to radicalism. Mm. I think that's that's an important I thing in terms of people that are living in this country that are Muslims that are not radicalised. I I think inherent in it is there's a rejection. I think a lot of these people have arrived at a crossroads in their life in which they reject a lot of the kind of materialist and capitalist things they look for an alternative. And for them, the initial attraction of of Islam is its its simplicity and the, the, the purity. And as Noreen was saying, that once they actually become attracted to that type of worldview and philosophy, there are extraordinarily skilled propagandists online and elsewhere who are able to start nudging them in the direction of even purer and even more pure, pure ideological states. And suddenly they they are told about this caliphate and that if they go to this caliphate, that this that. Uh, nirvana or heaven uh, yeah. uh, beckons and and a, a lot have gone and there have been a lot of very young and impressionable people from very deprived backgrounds have gone but there have been a lot of sophisticated middle class people who have gone from Canada and from elsewhere there was an extraordinarily uh, podcast series on uh, that the New York Times did called mm-hmm. Caliphate yeah. and its principal star was, was a middle class Canadian man who was suckered in by this and ended up going over to, to Syria fighting on behalf of ISIS. Yeah, but what what is confusing, and I do take the fact that the question is really important, if you talk to Muslims, they talk about their faith as a faith of peace. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, beheading people and putting their heads on, on spikes doesn't really marry with peaceful, but then they do it every Friday in Riyadh. Do you know? Yeah, but the, the Crusades were done in the name of Christianity in, in, yeah. in the Middle Ages. That yeah. that that is just a a a particular particular interpretation of the scriptures, yeah. which is manipulated for political or for other. Yes, for in other order means. in order to create this purer world, we have to eliminate the impure people. Mm. 
We're not, immu- we're not immune to that in Europe either, no, which our no, history would suggest. Yeah, exactly. I think right. it is a million miles away from Islam that is practiced yes. by the vast, vast majority yeah. of, of Muslim yeah. people. And I think while we can be sympathetic to Lisa Smith, it shouldn't take away from the fact that these people want to kill us. Yeah. That that's what ISIS is. They want to destroy the West and yeah. our lifestyle and what we stand for. Okay. Um, do, talking about our lifestyle and more particularly what we stand for, Alan Dukes... Um, Yesterday, politics, Finnegal, disappointment. Yeah, well, what happened yesterday was uh, Fianna Fáil retained a seat as it held and gained a new seat in Wexford. That was a very good day for them. Uh, Sinn Féin gained a seat in Dublin Midwest. That was a very good result for them. Uh, Finnegal lost a seat uh, in Dublin Midwest. That was a bad day. Uh, disappointing for both the party and for Emer herself, who was a very good candidate. Um, and Fianna Fáil took what had been an independent seat uh, in Wexford. Um, it's not unusual for governments to, to lose by-elections during their term of office. Uh, so I, and, of course, the Green Party in Fingal. Oh, the Green Party ever. in Fingal, yeah. of course, yes. Uh, I had forgotten that. Yeah. that. And that's, you know, back to a status quo when Trevor Sargent... Yes. held that seat for quite a long time. And that's a really good result uh, for the Green Party. Although, you know, looking at the results elsewhere, I don't see evidence of a huge kind of surge for the Greens. Um, I think their candidate in Fingal uh, was able to remind people of the good record of Trevor Sargent in that constituency over quite a long and time. And I think that Trevor campaigned for her He did, he right, did, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, and I'm delighted to see that he, he felt that a clergyman could still get involved in, in politics. And why not? You know, and why not? Um, we've been critical of clergy people being we involved in politics have. before, but in that case, I think it's fine. Um, it's certainly a, a setback for the government. Yeah, um, and uh, the. But I think that the, the sad part of it, the most concerning part of it, as far as I'm concerned, is that Verona Murphy kind of self destructed very early on. Um, now, I don't know where she got the views uh, that she was putting forward and her retractions or apologies were less than convincing uh, and I think she seriously embarrassed uh, the rest of Fine Gael. I, I have to say also, though, that um, Fianna Fáil jumped up very quickly and claimed that this was evidence of Fine Gael trying to test out the waters. I think that's absolute nonsense. Uh, I think Verona Murphy bought a load of rubbish uh, from some people she talked to. Um, well, it, 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 it she, she was in Brian. here at one stage with two truckers yeah. talking about their difficulties with people climbing into the back of oh, their yeah, trucks. Oh, yeah, but that's a completely... So that's where she's coming from. It's a completely from. different problem from, from the, the way she, she expressed it. Uh, but I think, thinking about it during the course of the campaign and one or two other people uh, during the campaign, I think we have to realise that there is in Ireland a kind of a latent uh, fear or suspicion or doubt fear, about fear coming in. Uh, and I think we need to confront that. Um, OK, let me come to you, Gráinne. 
Yeah, I, I just taking up Alan's point, um, Brendan O'Connor has a really good uh, piece in the Sunday Independent. Did Fine Gael just help to normalise xenophobia? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, from, from this article's perspective, I think what he's put his finger on here is that, you know, as leaders, political leaders and civic society leaders, you can go either way with these kinds of things. You can be the kind of person and party that stands up and says, we won't stand for that kind of uh, thing. Um, anyone who's saying such misinformed uh, crazy things as Brendan says as were said shouldn't be a candidate in the first instance and should really reflect on their position and I did hear yesterday in the late afternoon uh, both um, uh, Pascal our Minister for Finance and other uh, senior uh, government figures saying that they weren't sure that this person in Wexford would be a candidate that you may not be on the ticket. They were backing off. They were backing off. Yeah. But, but, you know, I, there is an irony that this this sort of stuff has happened in the last uh, few weeks because, and indeed, that um, uh, Minister Flanagan was uh, Verona Murphy's uh, Director of Elections because he actually, as the, the Minister for Justice, has just begun um, uh, a consultation process which I'm in, involved in as an independent researcher examining uh, the extent and impact of hate speech in Ireland and the need to reform the current legislation. So there's a whole series of consultations going on at the moment to feed into a government review of both the hate crime and hate speech legislation. So there is a recognition at the highest level that this is an issue. And I think the disappointing thing is that in this particular uh, election, this by-election, the real leadership that needs to be taken wasn't shown. And I think it's it's not uh, coincidental that the Green Party person who won so many votes up in Fingal works for the Immigrant Council and would have quite a good profile on sensible things to say about immigrants, migration. Uh, And really, I think that that would have brought in a lot of sensible votes for him. Okay, Amy? Yeah, looking at Malcolm and Byrne's speech as well yesterday when he was Mm. elected, he also referenced, you know what I mean, kind of that that language, what language was appropriate. Language matters. But I think this is going back a lot further than just, like in Irish, um, you know what I mean, you you have an American president who is literally liable to say whatever he wants and I think as time has gone by there has been um, a bit of evidence to suggest that this is becoming normalised that you can say whatever you want whether that's on social media and that you know what I mean then you could apologise and move on we had it with our own presidential election um, back where you know Peter, mean, Casey. Peter Casey was, yeah. was w- w- on his comments and he went down and met them similar to going down to Waterford and you know, suddenly converting um, road we, to Damascus. Road to Damascus was, which was referenced in the papers, and I, like I, I would find that very hard to. Um, and Verona Murphy is a very, very strong lady. She's self-made. She has done uh, an incredible job for the. You know, to I mean, not take away from her past achievements, but this was this was very ill-advised. And I think with um, with Fine Gael has has numerous um, problems at the moment, and I, I don't know how well this is going to bode well. Like from from the rural point of view. Um, it would be seen that that the the party has moved slightly to more uh, the cities, and I'd be interested to see what kind of reception that they get on the doors when they start knocking early into the new year, especially in rural Ireland. Um, Harry, I presume you were all over this like a rash yesterday. Yes, uh, it uh, preoccupied most of my waking hours uh, yesterday. Um, it, it was interesting. I I would I agree with Alan in relation to Verona Murphy that this notion that Fine Gael were testing the waters is ludicrous. 
but others have. I think Noel Grealish has with mm. recent speeches. Mm. And I think a lot of that has come from the presidential election campaign when Peter Casey did so well on the back of some controversial comments. And other candidates have realised that there is a portion of the electorate uh, that will uh, uh, vote uh, uh, who, who, who will have kind of xenophobic or kind of anti-immigrant feelings. Rory Costello from the University of Limerick has done some research on this and he shows that it's most apparent uh, uh, amongst um, uh, working class voters in some urban areas, but also amongst rural voters as well. And um, maybe that's what we saw kind of playing out in Oogh the Ward. And Miriam O'Callaghan, the other Miriam O'Callaghan, who writes a column for the Sunday Times, has a very good piece on the more general thing about cynicism in politics. And politics, as Amy was saying, has become far more populist, has become uh, very Pavlovian and has become uh, very shallow, I think is the term that she uses. And those who uh, are of principle are sometimes excluded. And we've seen the cynicism in Donald Trump. Uh, we've seen it in the reaction of Boris Johnson and the Tories uh, to yesterday's terror attack, mm. where they've used it almost as an election uh, gimmick, mm. even though they've been in yeah. power for the past 12 years. And we've also seen it here, and she's arguing, as Justine McCarthy is arguing actually in the Sunday Times today, is that there's this kind of cynicism that will allow people to kind of condemn Verona Murphy one uh, uh, day of the week and then the next day go down and campaign with her. Now, I think Verona Murphy was the author of her own misfortune. I think she didn't apply a sufficient filter between what she heard and what she said. Uh, it doesn't in any way excuse what she said, but I don't think it was part of some kind of a larger plot. Just looking at the by-elections in total, uh, the, the big surprise for me yesterday was the performance of Sinn Féin mm. in Dublin Midwest. Yes. Yeah. And I thought it was an outstanding achievement by the party. They have a very good councillor, um, Mark King. Nobody predicted, I don't think, think even Sinn Féin themselves yeah. predicted mm. that he was going to come no, out. No, I was visiting to Owen O'Brien and he sounded surprised. At lunchtime, yeah. yeah. But Owen O'Brien must be commended. He put in a huge campaign on the ground and they... Um, you know, and it was a, 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 it won't make much difference in the arithmetic of things. I think the no confidence vote on Tuesday would be passed, but it gives Sinn Fein a considerable boost. They had a very poor election in the summer in the locals and in the Europeans. Uh, there is a kind of a trope at the moment that Sinn Fein are on a decline, and this will help arrest it and also kind of galvanise the leadership of Mary Lou Macdonald. So it was quite important for them. Yeah, I think Fine Gael had a poor election yesterday. Uh, but not disastrous. I think the Social Democrats are the other party that might be concerned after yesterday. They did OK in the local elections, but they, uh, I think, had a very poor election yesterday and will really have to ask questions about what kind of campaign they will need to conduct for the general election if they are to remain relevant. Right, right. I think this is probably, um, looking at it from the Labour Party's point of view, I, I think they're going to damn again the critics who, who saw the end of the Labour Party. You know, the Labour Party regularly goes through these cycles of yeah. getting flattened onto the floor Having and then coming back. Having gone into partnership with Fine Gael sometimes. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, that's an old theory. I've heard it a lot of time. Yeah. It has well, more, it has more well, to do with what governments do than with who, who they're associated with. I mean, look at what happened to the Greens mm-hmm. when they were yeah. in government with Fianna Fáil. And I think the Greens will be looking, I think, on their performance now. They'll be looking to think of who they're going to be in uh, government it, with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It has well, more to do with what the government does than who you're with. That they will go mm-hmm. into, if they can, yeah. they will take office. Yeah, and I think that's a, a legitimate... I know it's a hard thing for, for parties to do. The Labour Party goes through this every so often, and the Greens went through it. But if you're in a position uh, as an elected group of politicians and you have the capacity and the and the 
uh, if you like, the opportunity of being in power and you refuse it, then I think you're going totally against the grain of what democratic politics is supposed to be about. Right. Well, we've had that discussion with Sinn Féin, obviously, about um, abstentionism. Oh, yeah, but so who wants them, you see? That's the problem. Well, well you could argue who wants the independence as well. well They've got the voters. voters. Yeah, but yeah. when, when it comes to forming a government, yeah. you know, who's got a part of it? But with they've them? got they've got a democratic mandate, so yeah, you know absolutely. that has to be respected. I think there was a fair bit of hypocrisy at play this week, to be honest with you. And Justine McCarthy references it in her column as well, where Leo Bradker was doing today. a sneaky kind of a canvas with Verona Murphy, while at the same time saying that nobody knows about racism better than he does, which is perfectly legitimate. Um, but I think Finnegan were playing both horses. That's journalism you know. at its most tedious. How do you go out and canvas with somebody and say it's sneaky? Because you don't tell you don't tell the journalists. That's how it's sneaky, Alan. They knew he was there. <laughs> they did, no, they, they couldn't took, find him. There were no pictures of him with Rona Murphy. They there couldn't. Were, I he, saw he, a wasn't, he wasn't saw a available picture. to support her publicly. Noreen, I saw a so. picture of Leo Varadkar with Avril Doyle and Verona Look, Murphy. Look, Fine Gael were, were, were riding two horses. They, they were waiting to see if it was possible she could get a seat and then all would be forgiven. Um, but it's easy enough to step back now and say, not sure that she will be a candidate in Look, the general election. I think that I tell you, the, the one bit that I think actually is a problem and I fully accept that people say stupid things and wrong things. I think people in running for elections should be more responsible. They should not be spouting yeah, ignorant comments. I, think, I, be, I fully, fair, fully think that. But fair, did you see her video? The video that she put out yeah. on Friday night really concerns me because that refers to character assassination and it's all about to the you know, people Brockley. inside the pale telling people in Wexford how to behave and it's real parish pump politics and it's very local and it's blaming everybody else rather than taking responsibility herself uh, which is a concern if you compare that for example to Lorraine Clifford Lee who has been re- repeatedly apologising for comments she made seven, yeah. eight, nine years ago or whatever else and very contrite about it. You're not getting the same from Verona Murphy. You're getting pointing the finger at yeah, everybody but herself. Okay, if you okay, stop stamping on my head, I say, <laughs> I actually agree with you. And I think Finnegan were absolutely taken aback and shocked when she came out first. Okay, and can we're trying I move- to find ways of reining her in. Okay, can we move on? Um, and I'll ask you on, on this one, Alan, that story about Dara Murphy TD, Fine Gael TD. Yeah. Double jobbing. Outrageous. Um, uh, frankly, uh, and, and this is not kind of a diversionary tactic, I'm astonished that it took Fianna Fáil so long uh, to pick up on this uh, because it was... I think Miriam Lord was the first one to write about mm. it, but yeah, anyway. It was clear from the time it was announced that he was going to be the Director of Elections for the EPP that there was no way that that job could be done and do your proper job as a TD at the same time. Now, I have to say that it would appear from what has emerged that he has obeyed the letter of the law about how you comport yourself uh, in Leinster House about salary and expenses and so on, but it was totally contrary to the spirit uh, of the law. Uh, And I think that if, if there were any kind of reality about this thing he should have stood down as a TD the moment he took up the job as director of elections well, why did you feel a fall for that I mean surely that's a problem for Fine Gael I didn't blame well, you Fianna Fáil you said Fianna Fáil just no, didn't no, no, comment no, on it I said, I'm you know. surprised at how long Cunis, it took them Cunis to pick up on it he referenced though as well that you know plenty of other TDs have other jobs like they're farmers or they're publicans I think there is a considerable difference between having a pub in your local 
local constituency mm. or a farm, you know, with some with cattle, uh, then being actually out of the country nearly as often as you're in it. Mm. And mm-hmm. the fobbing in and fobbing out, it just, in terms of people needing to believe in their politicians and needing to believe in their leaders, yeah. this was just totally disingenuous. Yeah. And I, can I come to you, Harry, yeah, on this? In, technically, he hasn't done anything no, wrong. No, he, he has fobbed in on 120 occasions each year. Mondays and Fridays. And Thursdays co- when he's coming back from Brussels. I went through his uh, Twitter line earlier on this week to, to kind of correlate the times he's been abroad. He's essentially been Fobbing, fobbing in and flying out or flying in <laughs> and fobbing in um, over, over the past two years. Hard, yeah. And I think Amy is c- completely correct. The distinction, there is a distinction to be made between other politicians who yeah. pursue careers. They still have time to fulfil their parliamentary duties. Alan was saying that. He, he's, he's technically obeying the law. But if you look at the evidence, he hasn't spoken in the Doyle since December of 2017. He was on one committee, the Petitions Committee, which isn't the most taxing committee. He made one appearance there in two years in October of 2018. Parliamentary questions, which are the kind of the bread and butter of each parliamentarian. Yeah. His his three co-constituents have each, each asked over 250 questions this year. He has asked a total of five. Last year, he only asked... Two, these are written questions to the minister to find essentially making representations for their constituents. He has been absent. So that 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 argument, in my view, uh, does not stand water. Theresa Reedy was on the programme yesterday. I think she was talking to you yesterday. She was talking about this. Oh, kind she was talking to the, Cormac. Cormac, sorry. About yeah. tw- 20% of, of the electorate are kind of cynical. Uh, they don't like politicians. Uh, none of the above. And that, that percentage, unfortunately, is growing. And this type of story... Uh, it, that involves process yeah. and involves the, the, the you know, uh, what seems to be uh, standards that's less than the appropriate uh, for, from, from a TD is something that draws derision upon yeah. Parliament and upon period. They need to look again, and I think it's going on, at the rules for, you know, the fobbing in and fobbing out and what it actually means and where people are. And I think it, it's, a, it's a commentary on the paucity of imagination on the part of politicians that we've now got to the point where we have to kind of keep a roll call of them uh, when they appear. I think it's putting is Between this and the Printergate story this week, if ever two stories were undermining people's confidence in politicians, the doll, the political process and how the whole system is administered. And the civil servants. And the civil servants in terms of Printergate. But maybe just sticking with with the Murphy story. I mean, this is a guy who draws 94,500 as a TD plus expenses of 51,600 plus whatever else he's earning in his EPP post. This is nothing short than a scandal and the idea that the party would would in some way in any way be saying oh well we missed it or we didn't see it that the opposition wouldn't have called this months ago it's all a bit clubby it feels a bit clubby it feels a yeah. bit like oh well he's doing a good job out in Brussels and sure what ha- there is big harm here well he's Huge following harm. the rules has to be said but um, I take your point. Yeah. So I think it's are, are the rules wrong? Are the rules wrong? Like, you know what I mean? If you take the piece in the Business Post there, Aidan Corkery's piece, where yeah. he's quoting Paul Murphy, TDs and senators claim huge expenses without attending Leinster House. Our expenses are expenses. In any other walk mm, yeah. of life, yeah. Yeah. you don't get paid don't. to drive to a meeting mm. that you didn't go to. You know what I mean? And then it's like uh, Murphy's saying that travel and accommodation allowances has been treated as if it's 
core part of a TD salary, yeah. Yeah. which is now, not allowed in, in any fair, in other... Fairness, uh, no, they, they, they changed the system and the old system was subject to huge abuse. But the new system, they get depends on where they're living, they get a, a fixed rate per annum. So a Cork TD like uh, Dara Murphy will get 31,800 per annum, which sounds a lot, but that covers all the travel to and from the Doyle within his own constituency and also... But he's all not the, going to the Doyle. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, for, for, for somebody who's doing... Yeah. Plus, plus their accommodation expenses in Dublin throughout the year. So when you add all of that up, they're not going to be making a profit on that really when you actually add in the amount that they're going to have to pay for hotels in Dublin, you know, uh, two, two nights a week uh, for, for 40 years, uh, 40 weeks of the year. So it's, it's, it's not excessive. Right. But it's when, mm-hmm. it's when a TD is claiming it, and not actually using it. That's, that's when it is open to really But I think what people. sticks in people's gut is exactly that. It's just, it's this careless use of money. Um, going back to what you're talking about, the printer, going, you know, anybody who's in business, if you're doing a capital expenditure, you, usually you have to have three different sources. You know, where are all the, the proper rules and regulations around this? Maybe they're there, but I haven't heard about them this week. Yeah. You know, spending another 200,000 to expand the space to allow the printer to go in. Mm-hmm. And what is the printer for? And actually Justine references that again today. It is to print literally or four members of the Oireachtas in well, an era where we're really concerned about climate and about the environment um, and that amount of but, literature that is coming yeah. out. But so I think people, when they look at a 90-year-old woman this week for two days on a trolley in hospital in Limerick picture. and then look at this, what is seen as just willful neglect of any proper procedures, yeah. it does stick can, in their gut. Can I, what in the name of God would somebody be doing with 30,000 calendars? Well, I think this is the issue. There are a couple of things here. One is, it is quite possible, it is within the realm of possibility, that the houses of the Oireachtas will save money in the long term of having a printer that means they're not sending everything outside to be printed. So I accept that. But, Marion, if I went out to buy a washing machine... I would do the measurements. Mm. You know, it's either 114 cents high and how many wide. The idea that this needed the ceiling raised and another quarter of a million spent is another of these things. And that's why I, I, I think as the second story of the week, this is what gives people who... The pip. It gives them the yeah. pip. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of the indifference that, yeah. that they had to, to the extra expenditure because it wasn't their money, it was theirs. somebody else's money. Okay. Yeah, but I mean, no, the, the, the amazing part of it is that there was some miscommunication between people in the House of the Oireachtas bureaucrats, mind you, and the people supplying the machine. And they were not talking about the same dimensions. I mean, that's it's, it just says that the, that the company sent in the a dimensions the, yeah. of what you, what's required. Yeah. Yeah. But the numbers in this are going is up. a lot of money. Yeah. One point yeah. eight million would go some way towards the homeless crisis. Yeah. There are you, many other ways to spend yeah, that. Colin McCarthy's kind of saying to us, it's "Go easy small. with the blood yeah. pressure on that one, because there are far bigger ones mm. like the children's hospital mm. and like the rural um, broadband." Now we're going to take a break, and I am reminded. That that Verona Murphy did, in fact, apologise. We'll take a break. Podcast The Marion Finucane Show at rte.ie slash radio. Welcome back to the programme. Now, we might give a minute or two uh, to the departure of a certain gentleman from uh, Dublin, uh, Jim Gavin. Harry, you and Noreen both wanted to talk about that. Yeah, um, he is... He's a very understated uh, guy, a a man with army experience um, who was extraordinary at 
making a Dublin team that had been perennial underachievers into probably the most successful GAA team of all time. And he's up there in the Pantheon with Kevin Heffernan, uh, his predecessor, and also with Mick O'Dwyer. He's probably... could claim, but he's far too modest to do so, uh, to be uh, probably the the greatest GA manager we've ever seen. Wow. He's just been so successful in what he's done. Yeah, in American terms, they call him the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Um, (laughs) I I, I have known Jim a long time. Um, As long as he's been alive, our families are connected and um, his parents and my parents are all from West Clare. He's always been a very humble guy. He's an authentic leader because he's an authentic person. Um, But I think what he's achieved is phenomenal. Um, You know, there's no ego there. He doesn't go out and shout about it. But I mean, I would suspect that if any other owner of any other sporting club, organisation or whatever wanted a good leader, there's the perfect one. It goes completely against the grain of what happens to other people who retire from football or other other sports. I mean, right. they go out on a downer. Yeah. He's, he's the one yeah, case who's go out yeah. on I, I don't, I don't envy his successor. I mean, no, to try no, to live up to that record is going to be just, so yeah. difficult. Just, just okay, to say, Marian, I want to as move a dub. Thank you, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good attitude. Yes. Yeah, we should do that more often. Now, um, Business Post has protesting farmers face into a hostile uh, new world. We also have in the same paper, Beef Price Fall highlights lack of transparency in the food chain. And th- there's another one. Farmers are right to have a beef with greens. Um, that's... Um, in the Sunday Times. I'll start with you, Amy, on this. This is your territory. Yep. <laughs> it's, um, we, we, you know what I mean, the city was held up again um, this week with farmers protesting in Dublin. There was, um, I think, 100, nearly 100 uh, tractors with farmers sleeping in tractors. And look, this was born out of frustration. The The summer we had all, the, we had the beef protests outside the factories and um, nothing really happened. Nothing changed. And if you look at where things are going um, internationally, prices have started to rise, whereas Irish prices just haven't. Uh, Brazilian prices have shot up. Brazilian, we, we've talked on this show before Don't about... mention the yeah, word I, Brazilian. But this is, this is the thing, like, yeah. you know I mean? They are a cheaper producing nation because of the environmental issues that, you know what I mean, they don't have to contend with and their prices are nearly on a par with theirs now um, and they just, you know, because of the fact that China is, the, the demand for protein in China is now phenomenal. Like, the price of pig meat has shot up globally. But these protests, you know what I mean, they, they really are a reflection of of farmers being really, really frustrated. Is there any, like the tone of some of those articles I was reading out the the headlines of, at a certain point, if you're rearing an animal and you're selling it for less than the cost of rearing it, is there any point? Yeah, but if you take, you know what I mean, the cap was set up originally to make sure that we had a supply of food within Europe and it has delivered on that there was a couple of other things that it was supposed to deliver on and income for the farmers was one and then the cap money that is what they're using as income and effectively beef is loss making um, for farmers but we do have a very high quality product that we can export and is recognised internationally as very high quality the, the, the problem is that um, it is being used, like, you know what I mean, the small amount that's sold here, the 10%, is yeah. probably being sold as a loss leader. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and into our, some of our international markets as well in the UK, it's not being returned, the price is not being returned to farmers. And this is the frustration. Like, there's a number of things that are called out in terms of what could help. And the government can't do anything on the price of meat. You know what I mean? They're precluded yes. from getting involved with that. 
these are private companies. Um, but there is, you know what I mean, I, I think a bit more transparency in the market. And there has been some moves towards that, that there would be transparency in the market. The problem with the protests, as far as I could see as well, though, is that it's not 100% clear exactly what the farmers wanted. These are individuals. They're not right. coming from the main okay. farm organisations. And without a clear purpose, it's very hard to get anything mm. delivered. Yeah, uh, Suzanne Campbell's piece um, uh, today is really good because she reminds us the 2003 tractor protests. I was there. And farmers were applauded and by and large people were saying, yeah, they have a point. I listened to some of the Vox Pops, some of the coverage this week. I mean, what happened this week is into a completely different uh, audience. Uh, And, you know, the fact that there was no IFA presence, um, Suzanne talks very clearly in her article about acknowledging what you're saying, Amy, about the fall uh, in farm incomes. But she she says to us that in last week's, the new IFA contest where the... They were doing their final kind of debates and speeches before the farmers vote for their new leader. None of those who are running in the next election to be the leaders of the farmers spoke about the challenge. Well, just let me finish. This is Suzanne's view, not me. I wasn't at the meeting. Uh, And and, uh, she says they called for farmers to fight the bad science on climate change and basically really do nothing, she says, to help producing commodity food and doing it in a way that gives sustainability and proper foreign incomes. Not one of them, she says, called for a realistic opportunity. And that's the audience into which this farm protest took place. Well, I I attended four of the hostings, the presidential hostings over the last three weeks. And in fairness, maybe what Suzanne saw, I'm not going to argue with that comment, but... At the hostings themselves, there was a, 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 every single night they, they were questioned on what was going to happen. And they did speak about the opportunities that Good. farmers could play in terms of sequestering carbon. The fact that they're already doing an, a, a lot of environmental good in the country, but the potential is there. And like plenty of the candidates mentioned the fact that if they were given the opportunity, this is an area that farmers would go into. You know what I mean? Like they want to get into renewable crops. There's the potential for carbon mitigation they want to go into across forestry, though. Mm-hmm. They want to go into forest. They will go into forestry. They just don't want to be forced into monoculture forestry. Do you know what I mean? There are other opportunities within forestry and farmers as well. They, they need to be allowed to choose, you know what I mean, what works for their land base. A very good article by Brandon Carney, who was former chief, uh, the, the deputy chief of Unforest Taluntas, which yeah. later became Chagas in our paper a couple of weeks ago. And which, which he said that the, the beef sector in Ireland is not sustainable yeah. economically. Are, are, are from a, a climate change point of view. And he had the article yesterday and uh, he was making the point that the majority of beef farmers are small-scale beef mm. farmers. And no matter how you look at it, if you're going to do a very low-margin product like that and you do it on a small scale, you're never going to make a living out of it. And I mean, we've been having this argument back since 1969. You remember the Manchot plan and all that? And inevitably, what he predicted has come to pass because it's where the real world is at. But the other side of this, uh, there are two other points about this current thing. One is that um, they have no leaders. There's no series of demands. uh, And the, the, the solution that was found the last time around, which is quite recent, could not 
actually take place because there were two injunctions still outstanding against people uh, from the C&D Pet Foods. That bit has now been mm-hmm. they're, they're actually They're so meeting the on Tuesday. So the study group can get going. They? They're meeting on but, Tuesday, yeah. I mean, it was recorded in one of the papers during the week that as Michael Creed was speaking to a group uh, of farmers, there was another group behind them saying, don't listen to them, they don't represent us. Yeah. Well, uh, I just wonder, I mean, everybody has the right to protest and everybody has the right to strike and all of those things. But I was listening to one woman who had been waiting for two years for a hospital appointment and she couldn't get to her hospital appointment because she couldn't get a bus because the place was gummed up. You know, Doing that to her, however inadvertently, doesn't make you friends. Now, there there hasn't been a lot of sympathy for farmers. And yet, when you look at Suzanne Campbell's piece, between 2017 and 2018, incomes on Irish farms fell by 21%. That's free fall. I mean, that's that's massive. Um, Plus, plus beef farmers earn an average €8,318 a year compared to dairy farmers on 61 grand. Is there any point? Yeah, but or or is it that they're not, is it that there's a declining market or is it that they're not sharing in the profits and the conglomerates are making as, as Alan was saying that, that, that beef farming is done on more marginal land smaller holdings and they're not viable Brendan Car- Carney's statistics are absolutely shocking he said in recent years only about 20% of cattle rearing farms and 30% of farms involved in cattle activities such as finishing mature animals yeah. were considered viable and he said in 2018 these figures fell to 11% and 26% respectively I mean the industry is not they need to start looking but, at yeah, alternatives typically, beef, beef typically the, the, the income the income of those farms is less than the headish payments that they, they get paid from the European Union. So they're making a but net loss. We have, to, we, have to do, we have to remember Last as well that, the, you, that, Amy. that this is providing a good in certain parts of the country where nothing else is possible. So yeah. do you know what I mean? They are working, they're living in the communities. The money that's going into the farms or coming out of the farms has been spent in the post offices and exactly. the pubs yeah. and the yeah. shops and it is keeping rural Ireland alive. Right. And, but, but there, and there's, there's way more that they could do on the environmental side with the correct policy decisions. Right. It just does seem to use that overused word unsustainable you can't be operating at a loss but it's never been like beef farming has never been like you know what I mean it's never been a very profitable that's why we have the cap okay. as well but to Marie, right. no, no, we no, have I'm to remember to leave that it there. people, no, people were stopped from Sorry, getting hospital Alan, appointments when the nurses went on strike too. hold on a minute now I have to take a break podcast the Marion Finucane show at rte.ie slash radio Noreen, um, I'm going to go to you on the Vicky Phelan story we, just to outline what she's what she's talking about there. Yeah, it's a very stark, very brutally honest interview um, and I think we've come to expect that level of candour from Vicky. She's been really open um, about what she's facing personally and she's been really strong in advocating for other women and for, for um, you know, justice, I suppose, within right. the whole cervical check um, controversy that has erupted. You know, nobody's saying it's not a good programme but there are women who have suffered very badly because of the deficiencies of this programme and she's one of them and it really struck me in this interview when she talked about you know she's on an immunotherapy drug it won't cure her so she's looking towards the future um, and she does have limited time but she's very honest about things like euthanasia um, she's saying that she wouldn't avail of it but she thinks that it should be available um, she talks about her own personal life the toll on her the toll on her children um, and she references other women like Emma McMahona who who, yes. who died yeah. um, and I think it certainly brings it home that you know you can be a public figure and you can be out there and Vicky came off social media recently because she was getting a lot of attacks she puts herself out there she and she gets she spoke at our Pardon? Pardon? she's 
spoke at our Women in Agriculture conference back in October and her presentation, like 600 women, was absolutely phenomenal, like reduced the entire audience nearly to tears. But she was really, really brutally honest about the treatment that she'd received, where things had gone wrong. And she said, like, I'll make no apologies about if I terrify everybody in this room into looking after their health, that's what I'm going to do. Right. And she said that this, you know what I mean, that this, what, what she's going through, it's actually given her a kind of a purpose. And I think that that's coming across very much in this article, that this purpose of getting out there, advocating, she only, she's saying like she, she's looking at two years, she could have up to five, um, that, um, you know what I mean, this immunotherapy drug, it's untested, you know what I mean, she's right, it's new yeah, to it. Yeah. But I think what she's trying to do is get out there and get as much good work done on behalf of women in this space right. and really educate women and and. I think call things out very difficultly. Like I think the the euthanasia issue is is a serious one, and for anybody that's watched a loved one die over a protracted period of time when there is nothing yeah. going, nothing going to change, it is a conversation that eventually this country is going to have to have. It will. It, well, you can feel it sneaking into the atmosphere. Uh, anyway, Ron, yeah. you want yeah, to come again? In? I mean, I think it is a, a really powerful article, and she it's no holds barred. I mean, she speaks about you know, her relationship with her husband, intimacy issues, really, yeah, really hard stuff. But, uh, you know, Stephen Teep, uh, whose wife Irene um, also died uh, a couple of years ago in the Sunday Independent, has, again, a brilliant piece about the true cost of cancer. And he talks about, you know, these things happen. You're so focused on trying to get better, trying to get treatment. But actually, the financial cost of dealing with... So you have two incomes to most people, two incomes to keep a family going. You lose one. uh, And and it's in in, in the light of a a report from the Irish Cancer Society website that can be downloaded, The Real Cost of Cancer. And he tells their story. Right. It is a very moving piece. Okay, well, listen. Um, we'll move on very briefly uh, to the the world of politics outside of this jurisdiction. Nora, you're just back from Nashville. I am. Yeah, I've spent quite a bit of time in the United States this year. Um, that was my eighth trip because I'm now managing teams based in the United States as well as in Europe. Um, so it's an interesting climate. Um, we're still a long way out from the from the next presidential election. Um, there's still a lot of unknown unknowns in the interim in relation to impeachment and other issues. Um, but it's it's interesting to see kind of on the ground the way people think about things, um, and certainly the perspective I would say I would get. And I'm no expert on this, you know, but I, I stay in a place um, outside Nashville, Williamson County, in that environment, 86.4% voted Trump the last time out. Um, it's a high income area, average income of about $100,000 a year compared to the average American income, which is actually only $28,000 a year. It's about 50000 in New York. Um, so people sometimes, you know, don't realise the inequalities within American society. But in that environment, they're not blue collar workers. They're not the people that you traditionally think in Ireland would vote for Donald Trump. Yeah. But they do. Um, and you Why? Know, it's an interesting conundrum. Um, you know, we're looking at it from a liberal European perspective, I think. Um, one thing I find very interesting within the United States is how aware they are of the markets and how the markets are performing. Um, their 401k is really important. That's their retirement programme. And you bring that from job to job. That's like an insurance. Absolutely. And you can cash it out at yeah. different stages. Um, but I think that, you know, when you're in an environment where it's employment at will, and it is in many states in America, so an employer can fire you for no reason at all. Um, regardless of how long you've worked for an employer um, you can be fired with no notice and you can leave at that moment and that's the law 
Um, and I think in that environment, sometimes I think people are very bonded to their churches, particularly in the South, because yes. that's almost the security net. Mm. That's where you're going to make your contacts and where you might get your next job. Um, and then your retirement plan and is important too. And the economy is going OK. I mean, you know, unemployment <laughs> is... is at 4% or something within the United States. Right. Um, so, you know, that's what people are looking at. Um, and I suppose then the the when you look at the candidates on the other side, yeah. um, you know, there isn't a candidate emerging yet um, on the Democratic side. Joe Biden is there. Elizabeth Warren seems to have gone down a bit. Um, Pete Buttigieg is an interesting candidate. Yes, the yeah, mayor of um, South Bend, Indiana, who's yeah. gay, um, but has a military background and also has a very strong academic background from Harvard. Um, and I think from Oxford as well. But, you know, it's all about money in the United States. Bloomberg has come into the race now. So it's, it seems to be an ageing billionaire's race as opposed to anything else. And, 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 and it's hard to say what way it's going to go. But it's looking like unless something derails him, Trump is on a good trajectory. And yeah. he hasn't gone up in the polls since he got elected. He, he has hovered at around the same place he was at. But the Democrats can't seem to make any progress with getting a candidate who is a credible contender. Or getting a few policies. I mean, the people I who mean, voted can for I Trump just ask you, like that group of people that you're talking mm-hmm. about now, how do they view education? I mean, if you take Joe Biden was talking about giving free education, you know, I mean, we take it uh, here. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say the earth didn't move or the sun didn't move. But that is regarded, I gather, as the most extreme communism when you're in America. I think you you shouldn't underestimate the fear of even socialism, a sense of, you know, not even going as far as communism, a sense of being regarded as being a socialist. And we would look at a lot of the democratic policies as being very centrist, being very middle of the road, you know, and even policies by Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, you know, we wouldn't think they are extreme at all. But there is a view that they are extreme. But then the inequality in American society cannot be overestimated. I mean, for example, in the state of Tennessee, the governor, the previous governor was here about two years ago and he had a thing called a drive to 25 and he wanted to ensure that 25% of the state of Tennessee would go to university or go to third level, not even university, some kind of third level by the year 2025 because such tiny numbers go on to, you know, education. So I think when you're dealing with the cities or the north or San Francisco or California or New York or Chicago where a lot of Irish people have their links and their roots and and even do business or emigrate to, it's, it's quite a different perspective to if you're in the south of America where, you know, you go outside Nashville or you go outside Memphis and every second road is named after somebody who's died in the Iraq or Afghanistan wars because that's where the military come oh, from. Of course. The, the, yeah. That's where the opportunities are. There right. aren't many other jobs. You, 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 I gather you say Trump without a doubt. I'm not so sure that I'd say without a doubt. I think there are unknown unknowns in the in that interim period. But at the perspective that we're looking at for now and where the impeachment process is at, there hasn't been any massive big... You know, will the shocker, will and the people are somewhat desensitized. In yeah. terms well, of I think it, people are desensitized to yeah. his extremism and what he says and what he does, and well, he I finds a way of explaining it to his base. Right. Okay. Solidifies his yeah. base. Yeah, it does. seems yeah. seems so. Listen, that's all we've time for for today, and I would like to thank uh, everybody that contributed uh, to the program very, very much indeed.